Love it. First John says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And he puts an exclamation point on that and just, just carries out and says, and that is what we are. Man, what freedom there is in our house this morning just to know that as believers in Jesus that we are the children of God Almighty, sons and daughters of the living, reigning, risen Jesus Christ. And so, man, good morning to you. And uh, man, it's so great to be with you. Uh, and happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers out there and those who've served uh, in the role uh, of a mother in somebody's life. Uh, we're so thankful for you and the work that you do and the way that God uses you in the lives uh, of all of us here. And uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Tim. Um, I am the college and young adult pastor and missions pastor here. And over the last few months, I've had the pleasure uh, to serve uh, as our high school pastor as well. And so to our high school students who, who are over here, um, love you guys. And, uh, and, and so like I said, so I'm privileged to do a lot of things here at the church. Our pastor is out. He is in Atlanta. Uh, he and Pam are spending some time with their daughter there. So I know that you'll be praying for them as they travel back to us. And uh, I, I consider it an incredible honor and privilege uh, to be able to preach this morning and, and the opportunity to be asked uh, to stand in for him when he is gone. Um, can we just say just amen to, to how God has blessed us with him as our leader and, uh, and just as our shepherd uh, to lead us and guide us for such a time as this. And um, so I'm grateful for pastor and I know that you'll be praying for him as he comes back. But we're in Matthew 13 today. So if you have your scriptures, you can turn there with me continuing in this series called Unsolved Mysteries. And as we come to Matthew 13, the narrative account is recording for us kind of the events of a crisis day in the ministry of Jesus. Because Jesus knew that opposition that he would face was gonna lead him to the cross. And he understood that and understood the reality of it. But he also knew that as he explained that reality to his disciples, that they would obviously have questions. The primary being, if all of this is going to take place, what then will happen to this kingdom that we have been preaching? And the parables in Matthew 13 are meant to answer that. These parables that Jesus is coming through are explaining the course of the gospel in this world. So put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. They're listening. They're following Jesus. They're seeing the work that he is doing and the kingdom that he is talking about. But as he is doing this work and speaking about this kingdom, the nation of Israel is rejecting him. The religious leaders are rejecting him and turning from him, thus placing them in kind of this overlapping kingdom uh, where it is the kingdom of heaven that Christ is speaking of and the kingdom of this world in which they are living in and which we are living in. And it is into that overlappingness between those two kingdoms that Jesus is giving these, this, these parables. Because the disciples are asking the very questions that we ask today, that if evil exists, and if God and the gospel seem so powerless at times against the evil that we face, then of what value is the gospel? Why should I follow Jesus? Why should I sacrifice for him? Why should I be persecuted for him? Why should I lose my life for him? And into those questions, Jesus gives us these parables in this chapter to just lift us up, to look us in the eye and to answer these questions. I've said this before and I'll continue to say this. This morning, you may come with questions. You may come with, with, with questions that you're seeking answers for that, that, that you just can't come to grips with. I just wanna tell you, Jesus is not afraid of those questions. Like bring them to him because he's seeking to answer those here in our house today. The seven parables of Matthew 13 are God's perfect provision for the imperfections that we experience daily. 
It is just God laying out to us through Christ that he is providing for us a provision that is perfect in the midst of the imperfections that all of us deal with and struggle with on a day-to-day basis. He's teaching here that if we understand the gospel growth and gospel judgment, that we will then be able to understand gospel gain. And what I mean by gospel gain is just this, that we'll begin to fully embrace Jesus and his kingdom. And that in that embrace, that we will see that it is of such great value that it is worth giving our own lives for. Because the whole message of Matthew is just simply follow me. From the very beginning, Jesus has come to people and just said, follow me. Not just follow me in the midst of feeding the 5,000, follow me in the midst of the persecution. Not just follow me in the midst of me walking on water or teaching some great teaching, but follow me in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the pain and the trials that you'll face in life. Follow me and you will see and understand that it is worth it. A few weeks ago, pastor led us through this chapter, the beginning parable, the first parable, the parable of the sower, that many of us, if you've been around church, have heard of and and have been taught before. And maybe if you're new to church, you're even kind of somewhat familiar with that. But we come to the second of these seven parables and one that's extremely difficult in its tone and in its tenor because of the tension that it is going to bring into our midst this morning and into the tension that it brought when Jesus was teaching it. But in the midst of that tension, there is Christ and there is grace. And I believe this morning that there'll be a moment for people here to make a declarative statement for Christ. And so if you will look at Matthew 13 and verse 24, it says, Jesus told him another parable. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, <coughs> his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He explains this if you look down in verse 36. Says, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They'll throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So this morning, before we kind of dive into the fullness of what the text is saying to us, I think it's important that we understand the context here. Because Satan seeks to oppose us and oppose the kingdom by trying to snatch the word from the hearts of man. If you look back in Matthew 13 in verse 4, it says, As he was scattering seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And then in verse 19, it says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. 
This is a seed sown along the path. So this is Satan's intention. His intention is to initially snatch the word from the hearts of man. But if he fails in that attempt, he has other ways of attacking God's work. And the primary way that he does that is through his work as an imitator. Satan seeks to come and to plant false Christians and encourage false growth and introduce false doctrine amongst the people of God to try to attack and, and to distort and to sway and, and, and to turn people from the hearts of God and, and to turn them to himself. And so it's always through imitation. Now, how many of you have ever been on the streets of New York or, or Chicago or DC or some big city and, and somebody has tried to sell you an imitation product? Anybody experience that? Any of you own one of those bags or purses? Okay, fine. somebody raise their hand. Nobody in the first service raised their hand at that, but everybody laughed. So I just assumed that like a bunch of children had bought their mothers like imitation products to give to them for Mother's Day and nobody wanted to admit it yet. Um, and so, so I, I have experienced this. I'll never forget, I was a student and, and with a, a group of our, our student ministry, we were in Washington, D.C. And we're walking the streets of, of, the, of the lawn there and of the mall. And there's a guy selling sunglasses on the street, Ray-Ban sunglasses for $10. Um, so this, this was a while back. I'm, I'm a little bit older now. So this was in, in the 90s. So if you played sports in the 90s, like you had to have a pair of Ray-Bans. Um, and and there's kind of some sort of status. Symbol. So I play sports, Ray-Bans for $10. You're not gonna, like there's no place on the planet where you can buy Ray-Bans for $10 other than on the street in Washington, D.C. at that time. So I got my $10. I walked up to the nice young gentleman that was selling these Ray-Ban sunglasses. I gave him my $10. He gave me these Ray-Ban sunglasses and it was the greatest day of my life. Um, I put the sunglasses on and um, I, I just like, a, another guy had a football. I said, like, I just got to catch a football wearing these Ray-Ban sunglasses to feel like, you know, like a true athlete. And, and so I, I wear these Ray-Bans everywhere while we're in DC and, and proud of it. And, you know, and like people are looking at me and like sunglasses. I said, yes, they're Ray-Bans. And, um, you know, and just really stoked about these sunglasses. Well, then a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, um, is standing there one day and he's looking at me. I'm like, what are you looking at, man? And he's like, uh, nothing. And he gets closer and he kind of is like really invading my private space at this point. And he is like right up in my face. I was like, what in the world are you looking at? And I kind of shoved him back a little bit. And he said, what kind of sunglasses are you wearing? And I said, I'm wearing Ray-Bans, man. And he proceeded to pull my sunglasses off of my face. And he flipped them around and he said, you're not wearing Ray-Bans, brother. You're wearing Rig-Bonds. And I said, and I looked really, really close. And you know, Ray-Ban has it there like, at the corner. And I looked and sure enough, as I got closer in and saw it, it didn't say Ray-Ban up at the corner. It said Rig-Bond. I'm telling everybody I'm wearing Ray-Bans. And everybody thought I was wearing Ray-Bans, but they were imitation sunglasses. I was so glad I didn't pay $50 for him and uh, only paid 10 at that point. And you say, well, what did you do, Tim? I wore them and made people think I was wearing Ray-Bans for the rest of my time. What do you, and so, but no, and, and so it was an imitation. It was fake. It wasn't real. And this is how Satan seeks to do this. He seeks to put people in our midst and, and, and to seek to allow us to maybe hear a message that, that seems like the gospel, that looks like the gospel, but when the closer you get to it and when the fruit really bears out, you see it's not the gospel at all. 
And, and that is how he seeks to attack. And that's how he seeks to come after us. If he can't snatch the word from our heart, then what he seeks to do is to implant an imitation of the word in hopes that we'll take that up rather than taking up the things of Christ. And so Satan can't uproot the plants, the true Christians. So he, this is why he plants the counterfeit in our midst. And so in this parable, just so you understand what everything is, the good seed, while earlier in Matthew 13, it represented the word of God, it, it's, it's not that here, but it represents people who have converted through placing their trust in that word. The field is not human hearts, but the field is the world. Because a lot of times this parable is usually understood as depicting the mixed character that exists in the church between true and false believers and how they kind of coexist until the final judgment. But we have to understand that in Jesus' own ministry, this was not yet an issue because the church had not yet been established. And so in verse 38, he makes it clear there that the field is identified as the world rather than the church. So Christ is just giving to us this canvas that he's painting on that is much broader than the specific issue of church discipline, which sometimes people want to lean on for this passage. See, Jesus had announced God's kingdom, and it would lead a lot of his hearers to expect some sort of cataclysmic, monumental separation and disruption in society between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And this is what they were anticipating. But, but things just went on as before. There, there was no massive separation uh, between sons of light and sons of darkness. And so Jesus is speaking in this parable to the impatience of this very issue. You can look back at, at, at Matthew 11 and see some of, some of John's frustration in this as well. Because God's kingdom does bring about division. And that division is final. But while it's already present in principle, it's full outworking for us is for God to bring about in his final judgment and not for us as humans and as man to anticipate by kind of human segregation. And so this is what this parable is contrasting between the hiddenness of God's kingdom and its future consummation. So Jesus here in verse 24, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. And what he's saying as he gets into that, he's just saying this is what it looks like when God is at work. And he's just putting this out and he's gonna separate these out and he gets to the weeds. Now here's what the weeds are. Because when you first read this, some of us automatically think to weeds in our own garden. And we think if you plant whatever it is that you plant, I'm, I'm not a gardener, um, I, I'm, I'm like allergic to, to like manual labor. And so, um, so, I, so I'm never gonna, gonna be out in the garden doing that, that stuff, whatever you do as a gardener. And... Um, and, and and so, but you know, but you think weeds in your sense. And so you're like, no, I, I know what a weed is. You spray the little roundup on it. You, you pull it up if, if that's what you like to do. Um, if you're like me, you just walk past it and be like, hey, a weed. And, um, you know, so whatever the case may be. And so we're thinking of it in that terms. But you got to understand at this day and age, th this was a very, very serious thing. The weeds that are referenced here are a poisonous plant that is related to wheat, and it's called a bearded darnel. And enemies would come and they would sow this bearded darnel among the wheat as an act of revenge. And this act that they committed, it was so horrible, it was punishable at this day and time by Roman law. So just to give you an idea, this is the contrast between wheat and, a, and bearded darnel up on the screen here. They're gonna put that first picture up. So I, you know, some of you, you may be experts in the gardening, farming trade. I am not. 
if I didn't have it in my notes, I could not tell you the difference between those two, those two plants up there. And, and so this bearded Darnell was completely indistinguishable from, from the wheat until the ears formed. And so you could have a light infestation of Darnell and, and, and it could be tackled by kind of some careful weeding. But here's a heavy infestation of Darnell, the second picture. There's, there's no, there's no, like selective weeding that's going on there. Like the roots would, would be so strong into Darnell and tangle with the wheat that it would make the idea of somebody going out and kind of doing some selective weeding impossible. And so in this parable, there are fruit bearing plants that are sitting side by side with weeds in a field, which leads one to wonder there and to ask the question as they do in verse 28, so do you want us to go up and gather them? and pull them up. In other words, do you want us to remove the bad? Do you want us to remove the weeds from the good? And this is an understandable question, particularly when it's applied to the kingdom of God. See, Jesus had come into a setting where, where the people of Israel saw themselves as a part of the kingdom. However, Jesus made it clear that while some Jews were a part of that kingdom, there were many others that clearly were not. Many who thought that when the Messiah came, that he would bring judgment on the wicked and, and, and on the unrighteous, that, that were waiting for that and expected that, that then because that didn't happen, did not view Jesus as a Messiah. As I mentioned in Matthew 11, John was, was questioning this and asking these questions as well because he was sitting there thinking that the time for judgment would have surely come by now. And Jesus is coming into this parable and he's just saying this. He's saying, just wait. He's saying, just wait. I think he's saying that over our house this morning as well. He's just saying, just wait. And he wants us to see the contrast here this morning between those who belong to the kingdom and those who belong to the evil one. And so second thing in your, in your notes there, those who belong to the kingdom. Let's look here because Christ is, is sowing true believers. Christ is in the business of sowing true believers that they might bear fruit in the various places where he has sown them. In John 12, 23 through 26, Jesus said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And so in this passage, there are four things that are said concerning those who belong to the kingdom. And so in Matthew 13, verse 37, the first thing that we see is that they are seed that is sown by the father. It is seed that has been sown by the father. It says the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. They are good seed sown by God as father. This doesn't indicate a priority though on a behavioral position, but rather it is emphasizing an invitational position for us today. They owe their position, the good seed owes their position in the revolutionary kingdom of God entirely to his initiative. And so for us here today, when we declare that I am chosen, I'm not forsaken, I am who he says that I am, we came about that through an invitation from God Almighty to come to him through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith. And it is in that invitation that we are then sown as good seed by the Father. 
But then also in verse 43, not only is it seed that is sown by the father, but then that seed has God as their father. In verse 43, look there, it says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Just underline, circle that word there. Because membership in the kingdom of God, it means adoption into the very family of God. It shows there for you and for me and for these people at that time that they were not born into it, but instead they were brought into it and they take their place as children. See, Nan and I, we have friends that, that have been adopted. And we also have friends who have adopted children. And so in that, they did not give physical birth and share the same blood DNA as that child, but they were brought into that family and in being brought into that family, they were not considered outsiders of that family, but they were considered children in that family, given the last name, given the rights of all the other children in that family. able to be an heir to the estate of the parents in that family. There was no difference for the parents. This was their child, their son, their daughter, and there was no indication that they came from somebody else. They belonged to them because that is the measure of adoption in our culture today. And this is what has taken place for us who are in Christ with God Almighty is that we weren't born into it. No, we were born into sin, into a broken down planet. But we made a choice at some point in our lives. Those of you who are in Christ, you declared and believed and confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. And in that declaration, you then were adopted by God as his son or as his daughter because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we were brought into the family of God and therefore God is our father. And there, there is nothing more powerful or more definitive than that statement in your life and in my life today. God as our father. But not only that, they are called righteous, it says in verse 43. They're not only those who belong to the kingdom, they're not only in a right relationship to God, but, but righteous in their behavior amongst others. Now understand me here this morning. Their behavior does not inform or impact their relationship, but rather their relationship informs and impacts their behavior. And that's a massive difference there. Absolutely massive. So here is, I've done student ministry for over 18 years now. And, and, and we're getting ready, we're gonna take our students to camp. And here is the number one mistake that I made as a youth pastor at camps. And, and, and I experienced this as, as a student, and then I, I, I made the mistake as a student pastor. Is we kind of find ourselves, and adults can find themselves in this type of situation as well. We find ourselves in a, a summer camp or retreat weekend you know, type bubble where we're isolated from the things of the world and isolated from the distractions and the obstacles that we face in the world, and we, and we get a lot of Jesus and, and, and a lot of things uh, of his word and we take it in, we soak it in, and we make definitive statements about what we are going to do for Jesus as we step away from that camp or weekend retreat type setting. And we say, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do that. And we have like gatherings where we sit around in a circle. And everybody says, here's what I'm gonna do for Jesus. I'm gonna go back to my, my campus, and I'm gonna charge the lost people with a water pistol that says, you need the living water of Jesus. And, and you know, and things like that. But somewhere in that, there is this failure uh, on the part of man, and it is to try to insinuate or indicate that what we're asking for is that you would walk away from that and be perfect. 
and that you would be perfect. Can I just tell you here today, and I wanna take some, some tension off of people in the, in the room, is that Jesus is not asking you and I to walk out of these doors and be perfect. Jesus is asking you and I to walk out of these doors and to be holy. And here's what that means. Holy does not mean perfect. Holy means set apart. Set apart. Does that mean that that you walk out and you get everything right all the time? No. But does it mean that when people see you, that they see that there's a transformational change that's taking place in your life that is different from the way that the world is living? Absolutely. Absolutely. It means that the grace that you've received in Jesus has impacted you so much that you can't live in the ways of the world that all you can do is cling and fix your eyes on Jesus and live for him. So it says that they are righteous, not perfect, set apart. And it says later on in verse 43, it says they will one day shine like the sun. This is the glory of the Lord. When it's referencing this, this is the glory of the Lord that's spoken about in the Old Testament. And he's just saying that it will be reflected in and from them. Will this glory be? And so, you know, it kind of leaves this this place here. It says, so then as people of the kingdom, as those who belong to the kingdom, then are we responsible then to go and to pull up the weeds? I think that's that's part of the tension that exists in this passage. And and Jesus references this in his parable because the servants asked, do you want us to go and pull them up? And the answer from, from the owner was no. No, because people of the kingdom are not tasked with pulling up the false. People of the kingdom are tasked with planting the truth. So, so if you're feeling it in here and you say, well, I, I gotta be the one that's gonna go and pull up the weeds. No, God has not called you to go pull up weeds. God has called you and I as the people of his kingdom to go and plant what is true. To go and to plant what is true. We're not detectives, we're evangelists. And so we must oppose Satan. And we must expose his lies. But we do so by sowing the word of God and by bearing fruit in the places where he has planted us. People of the kingdom are those who just submit to the reign of God in Christ and they bear fruit for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So then he contrasts this. So there are those who belong in the kingdom or to the kingdom and there are those who belong to the evil one. And, and, and this is a contrast because whenever Christ sows a true Christian, Whenever a follower of Christ is sown, Satan will come and will sow a counterfeit. And we have to be aware of these counterfeits. Because here's the reality for us. Satan has counterfeit Christians. Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. He said that he was constantly on the move, that he was in danger from rivers. And in danger, he says at the end, from false believers. And so there are counterfeit Christians. These counterfeit Christians believe a counterfeit gospel. Paul writes about it in Galatians 1 and verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so there is a counterfeit gospel that is out there, and that counterfeit gospel is encouraged by a counterfeit righteousness. In, in Romans 10, verses one through three, Paul says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them and they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This counterfeit righteousness is, is, is about being perfect. 
It's not about being set apart, but rather it's about following a set of rules. It's, and this is what the culture tells us. Culture says that you have to climb this ladder to achieve this or to receive this. That's not the gospel, folks. The gospel is not I have to climb this ladder to achieve and receive this. The gospel is that Jesus came down so that I could receive by grace through faith his gift of salvation in my life. And so if you're here today and you're wrestling with and you're struggling with, I'm just not good enough and I didn't do good enough this week to measure up to the grace of God received in Christ Jesus, that's the enemy coming and sowing counterfeit gospel and counterfeit righteousness in your life. And he's a liar and has been defeated and you don't have to give in to that lie. And so it's not, a, it's not this righteousness that you have to earn, but it is a righteousness that is given in Christ. And they have a counterfeit church. That is spoken about in Revelation, and it's going to produce a counterfeit Christ that Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so in this passage, in Matthew 13, there are three ways that those who belong to the evil one are described. And they're described in direct contrast to the description of those who belong to the kingdom. Verse 39, they are the seed sown by the devil. Look at verse 39 again. It says, and the enemy... Who sows them? It says these weeds are the are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. And that's strong language there, but it is clear New Testament perspective that the usurper prince of this world has claimed their allegiance. In John eight forty four, Jesus says, "You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies." Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So I, I just want to be real clear here today. I, I, I don't want to, to ride some fence and live in some gray area. Jesus is making it very, very clear is that there is wheat and there are weeds. And the wheat is good seed that was sown by God Almighty, by the Father in heaven. And that the, the weeds, that that is the bad seed, that it was sown by Satan himself. There is no in-between. There is no some sort of kind of good, kind of bad seed. If you've got a bad seed and you're trying to plant an apple tree, you're not getting an apple tree. You're just gonna get nothing. It's going to produce no fruit. And so there is no kind of gray area. I know we would love to live in a day and age where it says that we're sort of kind of good and everybody can kind of feel good about themselves. No, if you want to feel good about yourself, if you want to feel great about your life, here is the only way to do that. That is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That's it, folks. There is, there's no in-between. In the Old Testament, Elijah said, how long will you waver between two opinions? Either God is God or Baal is God. You have to choose. You have to make a choice. And Jesus is laying this out here for us. And so you may say this morning, man, Tim, to say that the seed is sown by the devil, that seems really harsh. It may be, but it's what Jesus told us. And there is no gray area, no in between. He says in verse 41 that they do evil. That those who belong to the evil one, that they do evil. It literally means lawlessness. That that's what's taking place, that they're rebels against God's kingly rule. And then finally, he says that they are destined for destruction. Look at verse 42. It says, they will throw them, talking about the weeds, 
into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this idea of judgment and destruction, you may be saying, if you're, if like you're here with your mother today and like you came to church with your mom, you're saying, this isn't a real encouraging message. I'm sorry. Um, we're, we're gonna get there. Because really, it's all unacceptable in the world today. All, all of this is unacceptable. Like we don't treat evil with great seriousness in our world. A lot of people don't believe in, in the future that, that in a heaven or a hell in this future life, they just believe that you're born, you live, you die, and that's it. And, and so there's no understanding of a heaven and hell where this great separation is gonna be realized. But as we look at the teaching of Jesus, it's an undeniable part and an undeniable reality of what's gonna take place. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter two that we are by nature deserving of wrath because we are dead in our transgressions and sin. And so there is a coming judgment. Those who belong to the evil one are destined for this destruction. The weeds are just simply unbelievers. Those who would identify themselves either as, as, you know, maybe at this time part of the people of Israel or even as part of the church, if you want to kind of make it in contemporary terms, it's the scores of people today who identify with a church or with Christ outwardly, but inwardly, have never had a moment of transformation and never had a moment of genuine conversion because of the grace of Christ. It's those whose hearts are far from Jesus. And so if you notice there at the end, in verse 43, he just says there, whoever has ears, let them hear. You just underline that. That, That's that's so important for us because it speaks to the implications here. See, this was a formula that was used by Jesus after saying things that require special insight. If you just want to make a note there in your scripture, he he says this in Matthew 11 and verse 15. He says it in verse 9 of Matthew 13. Here in verse 43, Jesus would say it again in Mark 4 and verse 23 in Luke 14 and verse 35. You see the same phrase used in the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And and this is all this is, is that it is a call for more than just kind of superficial understanding. Jesus did not want to give this message and, and then just kind of let it sit there and, and people kind of feel good about themselves and walk out and, and, and say, oh yeah, you know, I, I'm in good shape. Now Jesus was calling people to more than just a superficial understanding. He was giving them an invitation to really explore the implications of what he's actually saying. Because at the end of verse 39, look there again. It says, the enemy who sows him is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They'll throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So Jesus is just explaining that the harvest represents future judgment that there is a time when the weeds will be separated from the wheat, that judgment is coming, that there is a judgment day that is approaching for everybody. And that picture is grim. And it's a terrifying day of condemnation for the wicked. It it reminded me as I was reading this, there was a a period of time in my life when I was in school where I didn't really do homework. Um, I just felt like homework was a waste of time, so I didn't do homework. 
And, and so I don't recommend that to our high schoolers and middle schoolers in here. Do your homework. Because um, here's, if you don't, here's, here's what's coming to you um, in spades. So we didn't do, I didn't do homework. Well, homework was a big part of your grade. So that wasn't very smart on my part. And so I didn't do the homework. So the progress report came out and my grade was horrible. So, so my teacher told me at 9.30 that morning that she had called my parents and told my parents that my grade was horrible because I wasn't doing my homework. So I lived from 9.30 that morning through the rest of the day knowing that I was going to go home and the moment that I walked in the door and my parents were there, that I was going to be faced with incredible judgment in my life. So some of you students are laughing and say, oh no, that'll never happen to me. It will happen to you. And, 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 and it's coming. And, and I, just, I remember that whole day, I just lived like in this sense of terror because I didn't wanna look my mother in the face. I didn't wanna look my father in the face because this is what they were gonna do. They were gonna say, did you do your homework? And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, my teacher told you I didn't do my homework, but I'm gonna wanna sit here and say, no, I did my homework. And then I'm gonna get, face even more judgment. And so it was just this terrifying experience. I remember I did my homework that day for, for the rest of those days after that kind of one-on-one -on -one encounter with my father. And so the reality of it is, is that judgment is a terrifying thing. It is a terrifying reality. But can I tell you here today, you don't have to live in terror of the judgment that is to come. Because Jesus lays it out here abundantly clear that while it is terrifying for the wicked, for those who belong to the kingdom, it is a triumphant celebration. It is a day of great rejoicing. And so that day can be available to you. Because see, understand this. And I mentioned at the beginning the tension in this message. Because it would seem that there is kind of this dividing line. And there absolutely is a dividing line. You're like, well, Tim, like culture is all about division. It's all about sowing, you know, seeds of discord and discontent and division amongst everybody, all sorts of people in all walks of life. And yes, as you say, well, now you're kind of bringing that division into the church. No, understand it. Jesus was saying to the people of this day, just wait. And now he is saying to us here today, just wait. Because Jesus is coming again. He is coming again, and he is going to bring judgment. But can you hear me? And we're all sitting in this space at this time and in this moment. Jesus hasn't come yet. He is coming again, but he has not come as of right now. And in that waiting and in that tension, there is grace and there is hope. 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus is speaking of a coming day of judgment. And so the message for us this morning is to come to Jesus. That's the message. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but he wants everybody to come to a place of repentance and grace that is found in him. Jesus is giving this parable and he's giving the parable on the way to the cross. 
He's telling them this story and laying this out and saying, there's gonna be a day when judgment comes and the wheat and the weeds are gonna be separated. But before that day comes, I'm making my way on a path towards Golgotha to hang on a cross and to bleed and to die and to say it is finished, meaning that all the shame and all the guilt and all the condemnation is finished. And then three days later, I'm gonna rise again to give victory over death, hell, and the grave to you and to me and to all who believe and confess that Jesus is Lord. And so judgment day is coming, but Jesus is here today to give you grace and to give you freedom and to set you free and give you victory in his name. So the challenge this morning, church, is this. Is that yes, the message of judgment, it seems harsh, but the message of judgment here today is not a condemnation because there is not one man or woman in this place that can bring condemnation. Only God Almighty can bring that condemnation. The message of judgment for us this morning is a gracious warning and it is a glorious invitation because God is still lavishly offering salvation to all men at all times in all places for such a time as this. He is scattering the seed of the gospel everywhere. Take hold of it, plant it deeply and safely within good soil and watch it grow like wheat waiting to be harvested. I just ask you this question this morning, church, why stay a weed? Why stay a weed? Augustine said that those who are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 18, he says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Transformation is available to you this morning. Jesus truly does change everything. And so our call this morning is this, would you repent? Would you turn from your sin and from your ways and would you turn to Christ? Would you trust in him alone to save you from the judgment that is to come? So with heads bowed and eyes closed, is that you today? As you hear from the words of Christ and from the message of his scripture, would you just be honest and say, man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a weed and there is judgment coming. If that's you, I just wanna tell you, Jesus is here today for you. He's come to meet you. He's come to rescue you. He's come to take a terrifying day and to turn it into a day of a joyous celebration in his name. And all you have to do is just simply lift up this cry to him you can just repeat this after me and just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to rescue me from the weeds and to give me life. I don't wanna live in fear of judgment, but I wanna live in hopeful expectation for the celebration as your son or daughter in Jesus Christ. I give you my life. Forgive me, rescue me, set me free. In Jesus' name.
Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.